I want to invite you to turn with me now in God's Word to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, we want to consider the baptism of our Lord this evening under the heading of Our Triune God. Our Triune God. From Matthew chapter 3. Beginning in verse 13, we read these words. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here ends the reading of God's Word. May he add his blessing to it. And now we turn also to Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism which is found on page 209 of the Forms and Prayers, Lord's Day 8. And together we'll read the question, I'll read the question, and then together we'll respond in unison. Beginning with question 24. How are these articles divided, to which we respond, into three parts? God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Flipping the page to question 25. Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because that is how God has revealed Himself in His Word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Dear congregation, does God care for you? There's an attitude in our culture where God is perceived as so high, God is perceived as so lofty, so distant, if we believe in a God, we could scarcely believe in a God who cares for us. We call this deism from the Latin word de, which means God, that people might believe in a God a Creator who sets the world in motion, but then He steps back from creation and really has no involvement or really doesn't care about what happens in this world or what happens to His creation. Some people think that God is so far up there, He's so high above us, it's as if He doesn't even exist. Have you encountered this? in your life. Whether you're relaxing, working, shopping, doing schoolwork, we act as if God is 10 million miles away and doesn't really care. Sometimes this belief can creep into our Reformed circles as well. We're Calvinists and we rightly affirm God has elected us before eternity passed. But is God more involved in our life than simply choosing us? Is the question I want to put to you this evening. Our catechism, I think, is right. 
when reflecting here in Lord's Day 8 on the triune God, the word Trinity is not used, but clearly that is the aim of Lord's Day 8 to show us the biblical teaching of the Trinity. It makes it very clear that this Trinity is holy, but this Trinity is also our God. Circle that word, our. It's so important. The God of the Bible is not aloof or uninterested in your life. God is not uncaring about His creation. He is, in fact, the Christian's personal God. The Christian's saving God. Listen well to question 24 this evening, my friends. He is not just the God of the creation, or the redemption, or the sanctification, but our creation. Our redemption and our sanctification. God is ours. Holy ours. Invested in us from beginning to end. This is a great comfort for all God's people. And this can be seen in Jesus' baptism where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit together testify that the triune God works together for our salvation. The triune God works together for our salvation. I want to show you this in three points this evening because we see all three members of the Godhead here in Matthew 3, don't we? That Jesus was baptized for us. The Spirit sanctifies for us. And God the Father confirms Christ's work for us. Christ was baptized for us. The Spirit sanctifies for us. And the Father confirms Christ's work for us. Let's consider first Christ's baptism. In Matthew 3, we have the first intersection of the two greatest ministries that ever existed on earth. John and Jesus. We talked about them both this morning in our Advent series. The ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John are found meeting together here in John or Matthew chapter 3. And Jesus is traveling some 60 miles from Nazareth. In Mark 1, verse 9, it says He's coming from Nazareth all the way to Bethany to be baptized by John. We spoke about it a touch this morning, but John's ministry simply consisted in three words. Do you remember what they were? Repent and believe. John was a minister calling people to repentance. Repent from your sins. The kingdom of God is at hand. He says in 3 verse 2. And he was so effective at his preaching, it says that all of Judea, Jerusalem and Judea, verse 5, came to be baptized by John. We're talking about thousands and thousands of people going into the wilderness to listen to this preacher to repent of their sins because the kingdom of God was drawing 
near. It was an incredible ministry. But we're immediately struck with a problem in Matthew chapter 3, aren't we? Christ is traveling 60 miles to hear the preacher who is calling the the, uh, people of Israel to repentance. The problem is this. Christ is not a sinner. Christ is not a sinner. That is what Matthew tells us. If you flip back to uh, chapter 1, verse 18, it says, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was born without the stain of original sin. He was not born like you or I, who come out of the womb sinners. He was born free from sin. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 27, verse 24, Matthew says he, Jesus never sinned before them either. Born without sin and never committing sin. So you begin to see the problem, don't you? The first problem is this. John is clear. This baptism is for sinners. But Christ isn't a sinner. You can't repent of sins and you can't receive the forgiveness of sins of which you don't commit. And second of all, John says this baptism was to prepare a way for Christ. And Jesus doesn't need to prepare the way for Himself. So it makes sense, if you have your Bible open in verse 14, John's confusion here. I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? He's saying, what are you doing here, Jesus? This baptism isn't for you. It's for everybody else but you. It's for sinners. And so John sees a major issue here in baptizing Christ, and rightly so. You see, the ancient Jews would have been familiar with this idea of baptism. I don't believe that John's baptism in Matthew chapter 3 is the first instance of baptism we see in the Bible. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse, well, I should just say Hebrews chapter 9, the author, the apostle of Hebrews, writes that there are many types of baptisms. He says in 9 verse 10, these, they are only a matter of food and drink and ceremonial washings, referring to the Old Testament. And the word there is baptismos. And then in chapter 9 verse 13, in chapter 9 verse 19, in chapter 9 verse 22, he describes three different baptismos in the Old Testament. These baptismas, these ceremonial washings, would have involved the idea of purification. They purified the priests so that they could go into the tabernacle. They purified every instrument in the tabernacle so that it could be in the presence of God. They purified everything that would have been in God's presence. And so when the Jews came out in the wilderness to be baptized with John, there was that communication of the idea, I need to be purified. 
I need to be cleaned. So you could interpret John's words here in verse 14, I can't purify you, Jesus. You are the one who should be purifying Me. But the highlight of this sequence, this conversation between John and Jesus, is verse 15. And you could summarize Jesus' words in one word this evening. It's as if Jesus says to John, Exactly. I am not being baptized for me. I'm being baptized for you. I want to do a deep dive this evening into Jesus' words in verse 15. Hopefully not too deep, so that you can follow along. I believe you can. But I want to show you two things from verse 15 about Christ's baptism. Christ was baptized to fulfill the law of priests, and Christ was baptized to identify with sinners. He was baptized to fulfill the law of priests and to identify with sinners. Notice what Jesus doesn't say to John. He doesn't say, I need to be baptized because I'm a sinner. Or I need to be baptized to be an example for sinners. But He says, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Deuteronomy 6.25 tells us to be truly righteous to be somebody who is really a righteous person means complete and total obedience to the law. Jesus is being baptized to fulfill the Old Testament law. Throughout Christ's life, the New Testament says that Jesus obeyed every law of the Old Testament. Just a few examples. Jesus Christ, according to Leviticus 12, was circumcised on the eighth day. As Luke records in chapter 2, verse 21. Jesus Christ was required, it says in the Old Testament, to be presented in the temple, and He was in Luke chapter 22, verse 23. Jesus Christ was required to keep the Passover, and He did in Luke 2, verse 42. But I want to ask you a question this evening. What Old Testament law requires you to be baptized? Can you think of one? What law said you need to be baptized? That's what he's saying here. I'm doing this in fulfillment of the law, but what law is it? The law said a baby boy needed to be circumcised. The law said you need to keep the Passover. You need to love the Lord your God. You need to honor your brother and your sister, your neighbor. What law says you need to be sprinkled with water? I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me this evening and turn with me to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. Because I think what we're seeing here in Jesus' baptism is revealed In Numbers, oh, excuse me, chapter 8. Numbers chapter 8. In Numbers chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, we see the consecration and the setting apart 
of the Levitical priests to be priests for God's people. In Leviticus, excuse me, Numbers chapter 8, the priests are being set apart, consecrated for the work that God had called them to do. And look at what it says, beginning 8, verse 6 of Numbers. Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus shall you do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them. And then it goes on to describe other things of which were required in the Old Testament. Christ was a priest, our great high priest. And Jay Adams, a Bible commentator, says there were three things required for one to become a priest in the Old Testament. To become a priest, one needed to be 30 years old. If you want to, you can flip. We're not going to read it. In Luke 3, prior to Christ's baptism, Jesus is described as 30 years old. If you wanted to be a priest, you needed to be called by God. Hebrews 5, verses 4-10 through 10 make very clear that Christ was called to be a priest. J. Adams says the third thing one needed to be a priest was that you needed to be sprinkled with clean water. Instead of the laying on of hands of the Levitical priests, they were ordained by the sprinkling of clean water. It has been widely recognized by Bible commentary people and pastors and theologians alike that after Jesus' baptism, He was commissioned. His ministry really began. This was the launching, the starting off point. Matthew himself doesn't even hardly uh, record anything from the first 30 years of Christ's life. Then beginning in Matthew 3, the baptism of Christ, meticulous detail until the end of His life upon the cross and His eventual resurrection from the dead. What I'm suggesting to you, congregation, is what we're seeing here in Matthew chapter 3 is not the washing away of Christ's sins, but the ordination of Christ by John, who himself was a priest, into the office of priesthood. that He might be a priest for His people. It is as if Jesus said to John in verse 15, I've not come to wash away my sins, but John, I've come to wash away yours. And the way that I wash away your sins is by being your priest. Of course, John understood that Jesus would also be the sacrifice. As Jesus was walking along the banks of the Jordan River, it was John who cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But Jesus adds to this confession, not only am I the sacrifice, but I'm also the priest. I lay my life down. The high priest lays his life down for the sake of his people. That's the first aspect of Christ's baptism. Continuing our deep dive, I hope you're following with me, I think you are, is that Christ not only was baptized to be our high priest, but he was also baptized that he might identify with sinners. 
he tells John, I must identify with sinners. One of my favorite authors says this, Herman Ritterboss, in Jesus' baptism, he stands with the guilty. Not so that he can find salvation for himself, not on account of his own guilt, but because he is the bearer of divine grace and mercy and has come to unite himself with sinners. Tying this in to question 24 of our Heidelberg Catechism, God the Son identifies with sinners. Can you imagine that with me this evening? The Prince of Heaven, the One whom angels cover their face and cover their feet in the presence of, our champion, our captain, the pearl of great price, has come to identify with sinners. The Christmas season, and the Easter season for that matter, the one question that seems to always hit me every year is simply this. Why? We're not worthy of this. God Almighty identifying Himself with sinners. Why would Christ do this? We'll get to it in a moment. But to, we have to remember here Romans 6. Where the Apostle Paul says, we must be baptized with Christ to be assured of the promise of the resurrection from the dead. Christ needed to identify with sinners to show us that when we are baptized and that when we believe the promise, we too shall rise with Him on that last day. By Jesus' baptism, He was not purifying Himself, but He was being anointed for sinners to save sinners, being purified, or not being purified, excuse me, but identifying with us. Is it wrong to say of Matthew chapter 3 here that what we're reading of is absurd? I don't think so. Because he stood to gain nothing from walking 60 miles for Himself. He stood to gain nothing for Himself to argue with John in front of all these people. He stood to gain nothing for Himself to go into the water and then to come out. But He did it all for our deliverance. Congregation, if you believe in the promise of baptism, be assured of your deliverance. Christ did it all for you. I also want to speak to our young children who may be here this evening. Do you know that you were also baptized? And when Jesus was baptized, He was baptized for the little children as well. Even a little baby is part of His church. Is part of His body 
And if you are buried with Him in baptism, you have the promise that if you believe, you can rise with Him to new life, says Paul in Romans 6. What this means, young children, is that even though you are baptized, you still need to believe God's promise. God has promised in your baptism, I will be the God to you. You must believe it and receive it as yours as well. We want to move on then to the second point of our sermon this evening is that we've seen that Christ was baptized for us, but we want to see that the Spirit sanctifies for us. Now after Jesus is baptized, Luke says in Luke 4 verse 21 that Jesus is standing there praying and the Spirit of God descends upon Christ, rests upon Christ. Our catechism is not mentioned yet, the word Trinity, but it's clear from question 24, it's clear from Matthew 3, that the Trinity is what we believe. We believe in such a doctrine. Now, this church, of which we are all sitting in here today, is named Trinity, United Reformed Church. Um, But if someone were to walk in here this evening and to ask you, uh, uh, what is this Trinity of which you are named, uh, what would you say? Uh, The Jehovah Witnesses are really good at uh, tying Christians in knots over this. Uh, They will come into your home and uh, you invite them in and you offer them coffee of which they immediately reject And then they sit down and you expect to have a nice and pleasant conversation and they begin to immediately attack the doctrine of the Trinity. And the reason you think, wow, he knows a lot about this is because it may have happened to someone here in this room. It happened to me. And I wasn't exactly sure what to say to them. I thought, I'm in Bible college. Surely I can answer their questions. Uh, And I found it quite challenging. If you uh, go to Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Uh, The Bible is very clear that there is only one God. The Jews, uh, this is their creed. This is everything the Jewish people believe, and we believe it as well. Deuteronomy uh, 6, verse 4, they call the Shema, which literally means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Amen. But the Jehovah Witness or the Mormon or someone who is anti-Trinitarian might ask you the question, the Bible says there is one God. Why do you speak of three? Still others might say, I believe in one God and the Father, Son, and Spirit. I believe that those Father, Son, and Spirit are the same God acting, or same person, I should say, acting in different roles. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Getting into Trinitarian doctrine is incredibly confusing. How does the Christian make sense of it all? How do we make sense of it all? I love what the Heidelberg Catechism says in question 25. It's asking this question. There's only one divine being. Why do you speak of three? Father, Son, and Spirit. Look at the answer because it's an answer of childlike faith. Because that is how God has revealed Himself in His Word. Amen. Even though we may not be able to articulate God's threeness and oneness, 
we may not be able to articulate the ontological Trinitarian relationship. We may not be able to articulate the Son and the Spirit's coexistence or the eternal begottenness of the Son and the eternal spiration of the Spirit. And I'm intentionally using complex language to show you how quick we can run into trouble. We may not be able to, or we are not able to understand it because it's a mystery. There are some things that we just don't know and we'll never be able to understand this side of heaven. In my catechism class, we've been dealing with the doctrine of election and reprobation. Right, catechism students? There are some things we are just not going to be able to understand every facet of, but we are still called to believe what the Scriptures teach. That there is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Bible testifies to this. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verse 14, gives this benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Apostle Paul was Trinitarian. Jesus Himself at the end of the Gospel of Matthew tells us to be baptized. In whose name? The name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And likewise in our passage here today, in Matthew chapter 3, we see all three persons of the Trinity. Father, or excuse me, Son, Spirit, and Father. But before you even get to the Spirit's descending upon Christ, it says that the heavens were opened. Mark uses the language, Mark chapter 1, verse 10, that the heavens were rent asunder, ripped apart. John Calvin says it would have been as if, he uses very flamboyant language, as if John could have seen the planets and the galaxies and the stars before him. It's a profound vision. Isaiah 64, verse 1, Ezekiel 1, verse 1, use the same term, as something that prepares the reader for the revealing of God's glory. What, it's indica- what Matthew's indicating to us is that God's glory is here in the Jordan River. To this world, it just looks like another Galilean, another poor carpenter coming for baptism, but the heavens were pulled apart by His glory and the glory of the Spirit and the glory of the Father. It was a testimony to the threefold person of God and His glory. And the Spirit descended upon and rested upon Christ. Bible commentators often believe that the dove would have landed actually on the top of His head the very same place that a priest would be sprinkled with water, anointed, indicating that Christ has not only been baptized by John, 
but he has been anointed by the Holy Spirit for his task. In this moment, Jesus goes from the incarnate Son of God, but also now the anointed prophet, priest, and king, initiated unto his task, initiated to be our Redeemer. The catechism has already been clear. We needed somebody who is true and perfect, who can bear God's wrath. And now he's been anointed for this role. The Spirit has anointed Christ. But notice with me one more thing this evening. The Spirit has also sanctified Christ. In Luke chapter 3, Luke records Jesus' baptism. And then in Luke chapter 4, after he's been tested in the wilderness, he goes into the synagogue and he stands up before the Jewish people and he reads the words of Isaiah 61 and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here, Jesus Himself is giving, in a sense, an exposition or an explanation of what happened in His baptism. He has been anointed and set apart. Consecrated and sanctified to be our Redeemer. To save His people. And the Spirit has strengthened Christ for the task. Congregation, the Holy Spirit is as much involved in our salvation as Christ is. And here as Christ is about to embark on the beginning of this ministry, He commits Himself entirely to God, His Father. And immediately after His baptism in Matthew chapter 3, He will then go into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. But if you look at your Bible, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, who is the one who led Christ into the wilderness to be tempted? It says in Matthew 4, verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. This is a profound word of application That all temptations come to us from God. But second, all temptations can be overcome by the Spirit's power. We likewise will struggle with sin all the days of our lives. And we will know that certain sins are coming, won't we? We know the sins of pride. We know the sins of vanity. We know when the sin of lust is coming. We know we see them coming, but how often do we seek God in prayer? This is the Lord of glory, the second member of the Trinity, being baptized, knowing He's about to be tempted in the wilderness, and He prays for strength. Is He not our example? Is He not leading us into battle, if you will. Congregation, when you see those sins coming, don't try to tough it out on your own. I was listening to an old rock and roll song that my dad used to listen to. Christian rock and roll, I should say. Last night. And one of the lines of the song were, 
a real man gets on his knees and prays. There's nothing unmanly about confessing your need for the Spirit. There's nothing unfeminine about saying, I need you, God, in this temptation, in this trial. Jesus is our example. Go to the Lord in prayer. Seek Him in the Word and sacraments like Christ did. There we will find strength for the battles that we face. Thirdly and finally, we want to see in verse 17, the Father then confirms Christ's work for us. The final person of the Trinity is now revealed, the Father in verse 17, who speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And I want you to notice two words with me here. Son and beloved. The Father, this voice from heaven, God, presents the man Jesus as His Son. This is God's Son in human flesh. God's Son in His humanity and in His deity. Matthew will imply throughout his Gospel in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, 14, 27 through 28, 17 to 22, 44, that before Jesus existed as a man, He existed as the second person of the Godhead. He is the Son of God. The eternal Son of God. But He goes on to say, He is my beloved Son. Or the Son in whom He is well pleased. That term, beloved Son. Did you notice when we were singing Psalm 2, before we came to this sermon portion of our service this evening, it spoke of that beloved Son. Verse 7, kiss the Son. Lest He be angry and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Isaiah 42 verse 1 likewise says, Behold my Son, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Christ is the beloved Son of the Father. The Messiah. The One in whom God delights. And the reason God delights in Him is because He never had a need of reconciliation. He was always perfect. Always enjoyed God's favor. And He testified to be the beloved Son because that's what we are now. In Christ. The Father declares that Christ is the beloved Son as an assurance for us. That for all who are baptized in Him, we are beloved sons. He he declares not only the perfectness of the Son, but that those who are adopted into the family of God are beloved too. See, Christ is beloved. He is the champion of heaven. The Son of God. But the reason He is being baptized, the reason that He embarks on this ministry that will ultimately end in the cross is that God 
would also be our Father. And that even though we are sinners, we have been God-haters, we have been like disobedient children resisting His love, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 6, we become loved by God in the Beloved Son. God the Father confirms Christ's sonship. He confirms Christ's work. And He does it for us. For our comfort. For our assurance. For our salvation. Let's conclude this evening. I hope you see, congregation, that all three persons of the Godhead have worked hand in hand to save lost sinners God the Father loves sinners. God the Son loves sinners. God the Holy Spirit loves sinners. We confess a triune God who is our God, who has created, delivered, and sanctified us, who has loved us to save us from our sins. Amen. Let's pray. Merciful God, we do give you thanks for this divine testimony that has come to us this evening from the pages of Holy Scripture. That you are God, one God, before all ages, in whom there are three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that we, your people, who have received this testimony, do not have a Son who loves us, but a Father who is cold to His Son's pet project, but a Father, a God who is the Father who loves us, a God who, the Spirit who loves us, a God, the Son that loves us. This is our joy. This is our comfort that You have done all this for us. Father, we pray if there be any among us here this evening who have not yet embraced You as You have been revealed in Your Word, a saving threefold God. Lord, touch their hearts. Draw them unto Yourself and save them from their sins. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.